They say that life can deal anyone a bad hand, but my guest today set his goal on becoming a good hand. You see, this former bartender, junk hauler, furniture mover, waiter, security guard, and driver became an oil field hand, an American working man, and moreover, he wrote about it with dirt beneath his nails. I'm Dr. Alan Campbell, and this is Watching America. All my life, watching America. All my life, it's panic in America. Oh, 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 it's trouble in America. From WHRV Norfolk, this is Watching America. Lace-up boots and faded jeans A homemade sandwich, a half a jug of tea Average joke, the average pay The same old end, the same old day But there's nothing wrong with a hard hat and a hammer Kind of glue that sticks this world together Hands of steel and cradle of the promised land Bless the working man. They are called blue-collar jobs, in reference to the blue-colored work shirts worn by laborers in the last century. Blue-collar jobs are associated with unfavorable conditions, such as heat, sweat, cold, shivering, grease, dirt, big machinery, and danger. Michael Patrick F. Smith learned a lot about such things when he moved to an American boomtown to work in the oil fields. Working man, all oh, the working man. And woman. Some would tell us that there's a disappearing breed of person. It's the American working man. Now, there are many who will claim that they understand who the American working man is, but do they really? Well, to set us straight, to give us insight, I am happy to report that my guest today is Mr. Michael Patrick F. Smith, indeed an American working man, but he is also additionally an author, the author of a new book entitled The Good Hand, a memoir of work, brotherhood and transformation in an American boomtown. But he's also a playwright and he's also a musician. But right now, he is our guest, and I am so happy to welcome him. Welcome, Michael Patrick F. Smith, to Watching America. Uh, yeah, thank you so much for having me on. It's it's great to be talking with you. You know, um, one of the things that uh, I think creates an instant brotherhood is amongst those of us who have actually done hard work. And that's not to say that cerebral mental work isn't sufficient. But there, there is something about knowing what it's like to come home at the end of the day and to have dirt under your nails. I've known that. I've been a, a chimney sweep, a custodian. I worked in a factory. I loaded trucks. I worked in a warehouse to get myself through college. And there's a certain, if you will, camaraderie and respect amongst men who are doing that kind of work. Now, I, I, I hasten to add there are women that do that work too, so I'm not trying to malign womanhood in this regard. But typically it is men that do hard stuff. Before we get into your hard stuff experience, tell me about your childhood. Where were you born and raised? 
I grew up in central Maryland on a, a small kind of unruly battered little farm um, out in uh, Frederick County. And um, uh, it was, you know, I, I, I come from, my parents were both a bit older. Um, and so in some ways my growing up felt a little bit like uh, growing up outside of time, I guess you could say. I have, a, have my parents had a big brood of uh, kids their first child they lost and uh, my eldest sister who I knew um, passed away when she was 16. Um, and then besides that, I have two brothers and uh, two sisters who are still, still kicking around the planet. And so, yeah, I grew up in kind of this rural area and then eventually later, you know, went to, went to college in Baltimore city and, and moved to New York city. So I've been, I have feet, I guess you could say I have feet in both rural and urban America, which seems to be a pretty rare thing these days. When you were a child, did they call you Mikey or Mike? Uh, my family has a great tradition of all kinds of nicknames. So, for instance, uh, my sister Megan, we call her May, Gon, Gons, Gani, and uh, sometimes Bean. <laughs> but uh, okay. so I'm, I'm I'm usually called Mike or Michael uh, or Michael Patrick. Um, Michael Michael Patrick is actually my first name. Okay, so when you were young, Michael Patrick, what did you see as your options growing up in Maryland? What what did you see yourself potentially doing as an adult? Um, both of my older brothers had uh, dropped out of high school, or one was expelled and one dropped out. And um, for me, my plan, you know, as a young guy was, uh, I, I, I frankly just planned on working at a gas station and then... Um, joining the military. There's a, a, a real history of military service in my family. And uh, a couple of my heroes growing up were young guys who had joined the service. So my great hope was to become an, uh, an Army Airborne Ranger. <laughs> and um, when I was in high school, I ended up uh, taking a theater class where I met a really great man, um, a really just sort of strong, but also sensitive man who uh helped me uh, open my eyes up to a different world. And I really fell in love with acting and I fell in love with music. And that changed the trajectory of, of my life. Was that accepted by your family or did they think that you were getting kind of, you know, highfalutin fantasies about your future? Uh, it, yeah, it actually was accepted. And it was, it was really encouraged by both my parents and all my siblings. Um, so I do feel I do feel really lucky in that regard. My mom, you know, we had this beat up old station wagon that had uh, the doors were duct taped um, and you couldn't um, you couldn't open the doors. So we had to crawl on the windows and then kind of like <laughs> hold and then try to pull the windows up. And she used to drive me to uh, my play practices, which were in the evening. And we'd get we'd be. <laughs> we'd be buried in blankets for this uh, 30 minute drive to the high school. And then uh, where we could see our breath the whole way. Sometimes it would, you know, it gets so cold. We'd just be kind of giggling. And then um, she'd pull around the side of the uh, school. So nobody had to see me crawling out the window. Like it was the Dukes of Hazzard. I can relate. Uh, one, one of my first cars uh, had a hole in the roof. So when it rained, I would literally have like a four inch puddle 
on the bottom of the car <laughs> everywhere. So when you braked, when you braked, Michael Patrick, you would actually have uh, like a minor tsunami that would go over your shoes as, as the walk would lap back and forward. So, yeah. Um, well, you, you ventured to New York. So was your initial intent to go into acting and theatre? Because, you know, obviously you had this uh, very influential high school drama teacher. Did you then say to yourself, OK, you know, I'm going to go for the Big Apple. I'm going to do it. Or was there another motive for going to New York City? Um, it was primarily to uh, to pursue theater. I'd I'd had a small theater company. I went to college in Baltimore, um, and or went to a, a bunch of college. I like to say, um, and I had a small theater company called Living Room Company, where we performed plays in uh, basements and warehouses, and they're sort of like a combination of parties and plays. But I was hoping to start a career as an actor and a playwright when I moved to New York. That was. That was really my motivation. So were you right in Manhattan? I mean, were you or were you in Greenwich Village? Where I mean, whereabouts, uh, Brooklyn, Bronx, where where were you actually living? Well, the first place I ended up moving to was Sunset Park, which is in uh, in South Brooklyn and uh, a really wonderful, uh, incredibly diverse neighborhood. Um, from there, I moved to Greenpoint and I spent the longest amount of time in Williamsburg, which is in, in North Brooklyn, a great neighborhood. Uh, let me ask you the next phase. I mean, you've had all these diversifications of experiences. So did you entertain the idea of, you know, I'm going to uh, make chili in a bar, as a friend of mine did when he was studying acting there? Uh, or did you just, you know, uh, uh, just find yourself working as a day laborer somewhere? How, how did you eat? How did you feed yourself? I bounced around doing, you know, any number of odd jobs when you're when you're talking about all the odd jobs that you worked at. It sounded familiar. It sounded pretty familiar to me. Um, not long after I moved to New York, I, I injured my knee and uh, I didn't have any health care. So I wasn't able to pursue any of the usual kind of blue collar jobs that I felt more comfortable with. So I ended up doing temp work and actually became a, a legal assistant for uh, for a few years. Did you get a paralegal degree or, or were you just doing paralegal type work? I was just doing paralegal type work. Um, I, the worst job I ever had in my life um, was as a receptionist at a high-powered corporate law firm <laughs> where I felt about as out of place as I've ever, ever felt. But from there, because I'd been, I guess because I'd been working at a, just at a law firm, I managed to get this other job that, that was a bit better um, in that way. The, the tough thing that happened to me and what I sort of kept seeing happening was that my artistic life kept shrinking. Um, and as I got older, of course, you know, the need for healthcare and the need for doctors and that sort of thing had taken precedence. Um, I couldn't just kind of, so, but, but the, the trade-off was that my time I was spending acting and doing things that I loved was uh, shrinking. Well, you remind me of a, a Frank Sinatra song called "That's Life," and there's uh, there's a chorus <laughs> of, uh, that goes, you know, I've been a puppet, a pauper, a pirate, a poet, a pawn, and a king. <laughs> I think that, right. that pretty much <laughs> kind of surmises your life. Let's get right into the book, okay? Uh, your your latest uh, emphasis has been in regards to your experience in Williamston, North Dakota. Uh, indeed, it is an oil boom town. Uh, it's a town which, as I understand it today, has a great problem with housing because no one can afford to rent because there is a lot of money, influx of money coming in, but the rents are astronomically high. It's the sixth largest city in uh, North Dakota. It's 92% white. 
and it has had, as we've said, this tremendous influx of people like yourself trying to make a living. How did you hear of it? Why did you go? And what was your experience? The way that I first heard about it is kind of funny because I was complaining to my mom about my uh, job as a legal assistant. And she uh, she said, um, well, you know, I hear there's an oil boom in North Dakota. Uh, she was kind of being smart with me, but um, it stuck in my head and I started researching and learning more about the town. This was in 2013. And for me, it was a combination of the fact that I knew I wanted a big change and that there was, you know, there was gold and then there hills. I knew if I got out there, the stories in the press were almost advertisements for this gold rush that was happening. And there were stories of waitresses making hundreds and hundreds of dollars a day, making thousand dollars a week. Um, there were tales of men hopping off the bus and uh, immediately signing papers that put them on an oil rig with a hundred day per diem and making $50 an hour. And so I got pretty caught up in those stories. Um, and it wasn't until Hurricane Sandy hit, uh, hit New York. And I ended up kind of I ended up basically spending all my time, all my free time doing relief work. And I worked with a group of people who were knocking out drywall in these houses that had been flooded. And um, in some cases, trying to get food to people when there is a real crisis. And it kind of just awakened in me uh, the memory of doing hard work and how much I, I loved that. Um, I would also say that, you know, I grew up in an abusive household and, um, as an adult, this is something I've learned more in retrospect, but as an adult, I've realized that uh, I have a hard time, I have a hard time sitting still <laughs> and uh, I'm naturally just kind of drawn to high stakes behavior. So when I was in New York, in a lot of ways, I was living the most comfortable experience that I'd ever lived. But because of that, I began sort of manufacturing, I think, sort of bad situations and putting myself into just just doing dumb stuff. Um, and so I felt pretty dissatisfied uh, with where I was at. And I was looking to reset in financial as well as uh, spiritual and sort of um, emotional ways. That makes perfect sense to me because um, one of the things that is quite common, although not always the case, for instance, with children who grow up in alcoholic homes with complete instability, very often they will sometimes grow up and uh, subconsciously create that instability yet again in their lives because it's what they're used to and it's what they know. Now, that's, you know, not a broad condemnation of everybody and committing everyone to that kind of future, uh, but it can happen. Absolutely, yeah. If, if it's not too personal, I only ask this uh, not to pry, but perhaps as a source of encouragement to others who may be listening – what kind of abuse did you uh, endure and how did you get through it? Um, yeah, no, that's that's a fine question. I guess I'd give the context that that my father, he was born during the Great Depression and he grew up in Appalachia. His father was a uh, flophouse drunk, like a real, real bad alcoholic. And my dad spent a couple of years at an orphanage in Cumberland, Maryland. Um, when he got a little older, he became a boxer. And when the Korean War broke out, my dad volunteered and he saw some pretty gnarly combat over there. He was decorated uh, as a as a uh, army paratrooper. Um, so he came. I, I don't think that um, 
you get through that circumstance and, and not that personal, his own personal, not to erase his personal culpability, but I think there are a lot of factors that led to him being uh, as damaged as he was. So he was really prone to just outrageous uh, uh, moments of rage. Um, I write about it in the book. You know, he was physically abusive to my older brothers. I was kind of a uh, sickly kid. And um, so I witnessed a lot of that abuse and um, felt a certain amount of shame and guilt around the fact that he wasn't beating me up, you know, which is, yeah, which yeah, is, uh, I can understand that. Which is, yeah, which is, um, it, it, it took me a long time to, to understand that and to wrap my head around that one. Um, but, uh, you know, he had a, a lot of it was threats. He had a a gun in the house and um, he would threaten uh, on certain occasions, basically to to kill my mom and to kill all of us. So that was a threat that sort of stayed in the house during the entire time that, um, that I was growing up. And, and even afterwards, I've had an off and on relationship with my father as an adult, he passed away um, a little over a year ago. But uh, it was always a question of whether or not he was going to finally go through with that threat. And so growing up with that kind of instability was was uh, really tough. He also um, he also sexually abused my uh, younger sister. Was the peace towards the end uh, before he died? I mean, was he able to reconcile on? Perhaps I should put it the other way: with with children, his offspring able to reconcile with how he had been, the closing hours of his life. How would you assess that? It was a really amazing experience, and um, that all of my siblings came from all over the country. We're pretty scattered, and everybody's got their own issues. But we all we all came and sat by my dad's side, and um, uh, it gives me a lot of pride to say that everybody. He was even kind of a jerk, you know, on his deathbed. Uh, but uh, it <laughs> okay. gives me a lot of that pride to say that all my siblings, we just gave him love. We re- we really did. And, yes. um, you know, I an- another thing I could relate is that, uh, you know, my, my brother, uh, Matthew, was alone with my dad at one point. He'd become, pops had become nonverbal. And uh, dad uh, popped up in bed. And um, was just kind of staring, uh, staring into space. And my brother was talking to him and he said, uh, he said, what are you thinking about, Pops? And my dad said, my temper. And uh, that ended up being his last uh, spoken words. Wow. Wow. How absolutely, completely um, astonishing uh, for that to be the last utterance that he, he made. Yeah. Well, um, you, you venture out, as we said, to, to North Dakota. And let me just uh, catch people up with who you are and where we are and why we're talking. My guest is Michael Patrick. He uses both names together. They're almost like hyphenated. Michael Patrick F. Smith. He's an author. He's a musician. He is also a playwright. And we'll perhaps talk about that in a little bit. But his latest book is entitled The Good Hand, a memoir of work, brotherhood, and transformation in an American boomtown. The emphasis is on Williamston, North Dakota, which indeed is an oil boomtown. One of the interesting things that um, uh, is associated with you is you using the phrase disposable men. What do you mean by that? And how does it manifest itself? No pun intended with the man. 
Um, I think, you know, we live in this sort of consumer society where everything is, is, is somewhat disposable. Um, I think in one way, there's a strong vein of my book that is sort of about complicity, um, Mm -hmm. and sort of this fact that we all kind of, we all live in this world that's run by fossil fuels. And, um, people tend to look at that as a political issue, that needs to be addressed in order to address climate change. And climate change is obviously incredibly, incredibly important. But when it's flattened to a political issue, it becomes, well, this is good or this is bad. You know, there's two sides yeah. to it. Um, yeah, exactly. And I think, and I think that, you know, we all live in this society where we all are complicit in the use of fossil fuels. So, so one of the things that I offer, I think, in the book is my own experience as being someone who does that job, which uh, just in my thinking, it it puts me closer to the bone of it. And also uh, it puts me in a lot of ethical, ethically tricky questions where sometimes I come out on I come out on the good side and sometimes I make mistakes and I try to be as honest about that as possible. But I think we've gotten used to uh, this idea of disposable men when you think about the the people in China who make the parts of our cell phones, and then when we think about uh, there's an there's a big migrant population of men in this country whose whose bodies and lives are really put through the grinder to do what are essential services, and they don't tend to be um, there aren't many people telling their stories. Then tell me a story. Tell me a story of at least two persons in your life uh, that you've had experience with. One was a man called Huck, and the other one was a man with the with the name Wildebeest. Tell us about both of these these gentlemen. Yeah, well, Huck was. Um, I met Huck just a week or so after his twenty first birthday, and uh, he had just gotten a big tattoo on his leg, and Huck was a incredible character he's six feet seven inches tall one of the funniest wittiest kind of guys that i've ever met so huck kind of saw himself as exemplifying this idea of oil field trash or this sort of idea of leaning into the idea of being the wildest craziest redneck who was always getting in trouble you know he presented this incredible dichotomy too because he was he was the sweetest guy um and had almost like uh a shining innocence to him is the only word that I've found to be able to really explain it. And when you have a guy who's going out and getting in fist fights and getting drunk and wrecking his truck and getting in fights with the police officers, you know, it, it's a funny word to use to describe somebody like that. But he was really struggling with stuff and trying to figure out his his own way through the world. And he and I became um, became incredibly, incredibly close. Do you think that Huck um, felt almost obliged to take on that role, that persona? Uh, I mean, some people do that. I mean, you see it with many, many young people that they kind of etch out an existence and an identity for themselves. And they say, I'm going to be this particular thing. And they and they work avidly at fulfilling it when it may not, in fact, be the most positive role for them, uh, at least it's one that they have they can claim as their own. Was that going on with Huck a little bit? Or do you think, I guess in a way, do you suppose it was that old argument of determinism or in, in environment that uh, caused him to act the way he did? 
I think it was a bit of both. I think that's a great question because I do think he was aware that he was sort of put it on a show and it was what made him likable to guys. It's what made him fun to be around sometimes because he, he, he was a great storyteller. And so hearing the stories about him rolling his Chevy um, were, 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 it was fun to be around him. And he was kind of like a natural entertainer, you know, and, and at the same time, it was a society that was um, a situation that did encourage that kind of behavior and did encourage a sort of uh, toxic masculinity and, um, you know, exalted it to a certain extent. You said that you became very close. What caused you to be close? And uh, again, how was that uh, borne out? I would say that one of the things that really surprised me when I first landed in Williston was that the conversations I was having with men, almost the first conversation I had with with more men than I could count was about the fact that, that their dads beat him up. It was, I called it the Williston hello, because people would say, what's your line of work? And then they'd say, man, my dad whipped my ass. And it became this, this great connector, um, which I think is a profound thing when you think of the type of people that do that sort of work. And um, I think with Huck and I, that was a connecting factor. He, uh, his dad was kind of rough. And also, you know, he was a, a very sensitive guy. And, um, you know, as much as I was a part of that culture and as much as I learn to get along. I was a little bit of an oddball, I think, to to some of the people out there. And I was a little bit more open or a little more sensitive, a little more willing to have deeper conversations about about uh, sensitive issues. And Huck just responded to that. And it, it ended up that that we were two guys who were struggling with some of the same stuff. And then the other thing was just our senses of humor really clicked and we just cracked each other up. So how much was the age difference between the two of you? You said that he was 21. Yeah, so it was, it was big. I was uh, 37 when I met him. So we had a pretty big age difference. But he was also, I'm about, I'm like 5'7". He was six foot seven, And uh, we'd go out sometimes and Huck loved to tell bartenders or people that he and I were brothers. And um, it was always funny to watch people uh agree that that was a possible thing because <laughs> we didn't look very much alike <laughs> now now um are you still in contact with with huck or has he gone out of your life um unfortunately huck uh passed away a few years ago so he um he was a uh he had a drug overdose an opioid over- overdose he wasn't someone that usually used that kind of thing um but uh he ended up using too much of it and he uh, it's it's a great loss michael patrick i i asked this question and you can decline to to answer it and we'll you know move on many men they're extremely reluctant to acknowledge their fondness for another man for fear that it's going to be misconstrued or uh it's very hard for a guy to say hey man i love you it's it's always got to be with the you know the punch to the arm very often and uh Hey, love you, dude. Love you, man. What have you? Did you <laughs> did you have a, a chance to express that to uh, to Huck? I did, and uh, I'm 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 very lucky that uh, I'm very lucky that we had the kind of relationship where um, we were able to uh, talk to each other like that without without pretending to be tough guys. He and I were able to uh, tell each other that we loved each other. That's great. 
That's great. Yeah. Well, let's talk about another significant person in your life at the time. And just to catch everyone up again, we're talking to Michael Patrick F. Smith, who has written a very interesting book. It's called The Good Hand, which incidentally, I believe, is a Western term which was used on the prairies where you, someone would be hired into to do a, a admirable hard day's work, I might add. The book is called The Good Hand, a memoir of work, brotherhood, and transformation in an American boomtown. It addresses life as it went on just a few years ago in the oil town of Williamston, North Dakota, where Michael Patrick spent some years working um, in a very, very hard and difficult job. So let's get to uh, Wildebeest. What a name. How did he uh, come up with the, the name Wildebeest? And, uh, and, and what was this person like? And I'm going to say character, not pejoratively, but they're intriguing characters. Right, right. Um, well, I did, you know, I changed people's names in the book, but n- all of the characters are... Okay, so uh, he was re- called Moose, right? Is that what you're telling me? <laughs> Pretty close. <laughs> he was called the Wild Man, actually. Um, okay. So there were, you know, people had so many nicknames out there, um, but because, partly because there's so much illegal activity that I describe in the book, I changed uh, people's names, and in some cases, I changed a little bit of their appearance, but everything that uh, I say happened, happened, and everybody who I say was there was there. Um, So not to incriminate the guilty. Right. (laughs) 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 I did have, this is a little bit of a side note, but I did have one guy who I had interviewed, a few of the guys I talked to on tape, and one of them had been in and out of prison his whole life, and he finished talking to me. He said, you have enough on that tape to put me away for the rest of my life. So <laughs> I got rid I got rid of the tape. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but um, but the wildebeest was one of the biggest characters I met out there. He he was in his mid 50s. He'd grown up in the oil patch. His uh, father was a gin truck driver and the wildebeest had, was literally raised in company housing. So he was um, he was shifting gears on a big rig when he was 12 years old. He'd been a bronc rider and a bull rider for a period of time. He liked to pull out his dentures to show how he'd been kicked in the face. <laughs> um, <laughs> and when I met him, he was uh, the guy who I worked with most closely. So the wildebeest uh, drove what's called a gin truck, which is like a a big rig with a crane on the back is kind of the easiest way to describe it. And it was my job to run along behind and uh, hook stuff up to the to the crane, to the system on the back of the truck. And I worked with him in tandem, Um, but he was one of the toughest, toughest men that I've ever met in my life. And um, he was incredibly, incredibly hard on me. So we had a really, really rough relationship for uh the first several months of my being out there he was going through some hard times himself and he had a real mean streak to him so in the oil field you don't get really any training it's just kind of like they throw you out there and um and you're you're doing a job where people can get hurt equipment can get busted up and if you're not careful people can get killed it's just um it's just sort of a fact and it leads to a a lot of hardness and a lot of meanness. The beast ended up, you know, doing a good job training me at the end of the day. And uh, when I, be, as I became good at the job, I gained his respect. Um, he was also a guy, he was an example of a guy to me that, um, you know, was also had a real deep sensitivity to him that I only really saw come out once or twice. 
but he was definitely deep in a culture of um, where anger is the best way to express any kind of feeling. Um, I did see him with his own children and he was the most gentle man I'd ever seen with his kids. He spoiled them and he was so sweet to them. It was, it was witnessing that was really like seeing a whole veil lift when I looked at him. And it just made me think who would this guy be in a kinder, more gentler world? You know, it's interesting because he, I, I don't want to make assumptions here and please correct me if I'm wrong. One of the things you hear about the U.S. military, a very common experience for people in boot camp or basic training, however long it may be, depending on which branch of service they go into. But, you know, these sadists, or at least believed sadists, who are drill sergeants, and uh, they, they really put people through it for the first few weeks. And then you get to a point, evidently, where many service people would say, you think, you're not quite sure that you see a little glint of humor in the eye about week four, and you think, no, 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 this person is such a such a, a, a sadistic person, they couldn't possibly be, be warm. And then by week five, they may say something marginally complimentary. And then by week six, they may even <laughs> laugh with you a little bit. And it gets to the point that by the end of their training with these drill sergeants, they actually have some, not misplaced, but genuine, uh, almost affection for appreciating what those drill sergeants have brought out in them so they can be better service people uh, for the U.S. Armed Services. Did you kind of have that relationship with uh, with uh, with him? I mean, was there a little bit of a point where you were starting to feel acceptance? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, the the uh he was he was um he was sparing with his compliments, but he eventually did compliment me. And I came to think of him as a as a good uh buddy, you know, he came to be somebody who was incredible while he was incredibly different than me. Um, we found uh, common ground, and uh, I'm I'm really glad I got to know him. He too, uh, unfortunately, passed away a few years ago from um, uh, blood disease. Michael, were you ever Michael Patrick? Were you ever afraid uh, on the job or when you moved to the town? I mean, you know, a boom town. We think of in American history. Obviously, you think of San Francisco. You know, the 1849ers and what have you. And so they, they come into town and, and, you know, you get the ladies of the evening who appear in every saloon might take your life. Was there a little bit of that atmosphere? Did you ever have a moment and thought, ah, uh, this is not a good place to be? <laughs> I was terrified the whole time, man. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, Williston, the population in Williston had been about 12,000 people. When I was there, according to the mayor, he said he thought there were about 60,000 people. So it was a town flooded with young men, generally without women around and looking for jobs or working jobs where they can get killed, you know, so um, as soon as that happens, organized crime and prostitution follows. And so the place was full of prostitutes. There were always rumors of crime. There's a lot of drugs. Um, one of the most scary and surprising things I kept hearing was um, not to leave my own drink unattended. When Williston 
when the oil companies around Williston began to hire people on, they had a felon friendly um, hiring practice, which I think there's a lot of positivity to. But they also were one of the only places in the country willing to hire sex offenders. And so Williston at the time had the highest number of sex offenders in the country. And I was constantly warned that as a man, that, that I should not leave my drink unattended and I needed to really watch my back. Um, so it was it was scary. And then the job itself was a job where um, you could get killed. I think I, I forget the years, but the the number of serv- American service members who were killed in Afghanistan from maybe 2013 to 2018 was basically the same as the amount of oil field workers who were killed on the job. What made you decide to leave? When did you say it's time to pack it in? Um, I'm out of here. Well, I had only originally planned on being there for three months and leaving with buckets and buckets of money. (laughs) Um, What got me to stay partly was the fact that I wasn't making the money that I thought I was going to be making and I was trying to catch up. I also became obsessed with getting better at the job. It was very important to me to become a good hand and to be able to leave with pride. Um, And I worked through... You know, from I worked from summer uh, into the winter. And then during the winter months, I was thinking about leaving. And I had an experience uh, in one day where I was almost injured pretty badly on two different occasions in one day. And it was by a guy who was uh, an experienced operator, you know, so it wasn't like a somebody new who was just screwing up. It was to me kind of showed me that like I could get knocked out anytime. And it, 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 it wasn't worth it to me. You've written some plays. Uh, you wrote a play with a very intriguing title, Woody Guthrie Dreams. And uh, I'm, I'm a big fan of Woody Guthrie and his son Arlo. Uh, mm-hmm. And he certainly, you know, was an American voice beyond this land is your land. You know, he was a man who um, had a sticker on his guitar that said this guitar kills fascists and things of this nature uh, yeah. very intriguing person um what attracted you to woody guthrie and to making a a play about him well you know he's such a fascinating figure and um i one the probably the first thing that attracted me to him was the music and i i love a lot of the song his songwriting is so wonderful Um, I also felt a really strong connection to him when I read Bound for Glory, which is sort of a autobiography or memoir that he wrote. Um, And Mm -hmm. in that he talks a lot about um, he was eight years old when his uh, sister was killed in a fire. And um, I was eight years old when my sister Shannon was killed in a car accident. And I felt this strong connection when I read that about him. It just opened up a really strong personal connection um, with him as a figure. And then as I started researching his life, I learned that, um, you know, he was incapacitated with Huntington's Korea and in bed for something like 14 years. So the uh, crux of the play is that he's in bed and um, this man of action who's done all these amazing things and has all these incredible opinions and has lived such a full life is sort of reduced to this bed. So what would he be doing? And I figure that he I'd sort of propose that he'd be dreaming. And so the play is about him 
dreaming his yes. way back through his life and also having dialogues with uh, figures that he uh, that he Bob Dylan. He was I mean, Bob in. Dylan in real life visited him just a few weeks before he died. Um, in fact, Bob Dylan, uh, when he was living in Greenwich Village, would go and visit Woody Guthrie, who I think was in uh, Jersey City or somewhere in a hospital, if I'm not mistaken. And he would just sit at his bedside uh, on a number of occasions. Did you have a scene like that with, with Dylan involved? Uh, I, I didn't. Um, I, I At one point, I had a scene with Ramblin' Jack Elliott, who was another yes. guy who was friends with uh, friends with Guthrie and who also taught Dylan a lot. But um, yeah. I, I wanted to focus more on Woody's life and um, having having Bob Dylan show up. Well, it's, it's such a great story, but um, I couldn't find a way to really fit it in that made sense with the rest of the play. Well, yeah, artistic integrity. I like that. that that's that's good. Don't don't push it. Um, right. Your other play. Ain't No Sin. I'm intrigued. What was that about? So that play is about, it was a series of uh, of three monologues. It's a kind of a um, much more focused piece that's uh, a story of three people who live in rural America, essentially talking about their lives. There's a uh, an incident involving um, somebody uh, vandalizing a house, and it's sort of the story of these three people as they each kind of tell this simple tale about their lives. Well, it seems to me that you are very much aware of uh, the American ethos of the working man, as we've said, and, um, you know, it represents itself in in many, many different ways, including musically. Um, You have a band which is called The Good Hand. So that phrase means a lot to you. And and the, the album that has come out is called The Great Away. How did you come up with the title The Great Away? Um, for me, the title is sort of very much also about a kind of American ethos of this idea of always like going away, going down the road. You know, so many people, there's so many uh, songs about cars or about different towns and about traveling. And I thought the idea of like, instead of naming it after a specific town or a specific place, more the, make it, make it a bit more about the idea of a place, you know, the great away. In writing these types of things, you are clearly a creative uh, artist. Um, other people have done similar work like this. There was a, obviously, you know, the, the, the writer Studs Terkel wrote a book called Working. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it was an examination of people taking pride in their work. And, and chapters uh, address the issue of, of wanting to be good at what you do, even if nobody else knows. In the good hand, as you've just said earlier, you wanted to be indeed the good hand. What in your mind, what in your mind was the definition of arriving at that point? I think of the good hand as an aspirational idea. Um, And to me, it encapsulates the idea of taking personal responsibility and working hard toward a collective good. So in some ways, it's about being an individual within um, a community and um, working to the best of your ability. I also, it has a lot of meaning. I spend a lot of time talking about what I think it means to be a good hand in the book. It's sort of spread throughout it. I also, you know, for me, there's a spiritual aspect in that the idea of offering our work and the work that we do to the world as a prayer 
um, which I believe also, you know, I like to say that uh, storytelling is older than farming. And I consider the work that I'm able to do right now, I'm incredibly grateful for it. And I consider it to be uh, as important as, as, as the physical labor that I also have done and come to love. Can you address what I was, I think in retrospect, rather awkwardly trying to put emphasis on? Uh, and I was basing it um, on, on the assumptions made by others that the working man is not very articulate, which I have found to be completely false. I think the working man is extremely articulate, um, particularly when unguarded. The working man is just as able with mental acumen to understand things, to exhibit great wisdom, and to be an artist. And you would seem to be the embodiment of that yourself with your artistry. There's two facets to sense of accomplishment. It's one thing to write a play and to say, that's a damn good play I wrote. That, that really worked well. Or to come up with a song and a lyric and a hook and everything that works. It's another to walk away at the end of the day having completed a job that you thought might take you out and that job has caused uh, a lingering aroma on your body until you shower. But this is, for all of the aches and pain, a great sense of satisfaction. Can you contrast the two experiences both of which you've had. Hmm, that's a that's a good question. Um, I mean, honestly, I feel like you just put it so eloquently. I would say that you know, in matters of energy extraction and in um, the sort of thoughts on climate change, that I really found that the people I worked with were the most educated and had the most uh, nuanced view and understanding of um, what all that means. And um, I think that there's an issue in society now with uh, our focus on political answers to questions that maybe are best resolved through other means or at least best thought about and considered through different lenses. I prefer to think whenever I can of people having good intentions, no matter how mistaken they may be. Uh, maybe it's just self-serving because I, I don't want to be put off life. <laughs> so I, 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 want, I want to assume that people have the best of intentions. But having worked in the oil fields, uh, having been on, you know, pipelines and, and, and everything that's involved with this kind of work, what do you say to well-meaning persons who say, I believe in battery-operated vehicles, and yet there's a part of us that, if we're honest, have, has to acknowledge that, well, yeah, but the energy to produce the battery recharging comes from fossil fuels. How do you explain this or do you not try and explain it and just simply bite your bottom lip and say, uh-huh, and then move on? <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's a really um, such a complicated issue. I think that in all cases, I think what everyone should do is look at themselves. And so as a person who I think it would be wonderful to have a transition to uh, greener energy and more sustainable energy and more sustainable jobs. Um, at the same time, I think about, well, what can I do about it? And for me, in the way that I've started to think about it is to think about my own consumption of fossil fuels, because I'm in control of that. I'm in control of who I vote for, and I vote for them once every two years. I make that decision, and I pick the best person that I think is for the job. 
every day I make a million different decisions on what I'm going to buy, if I'm going to drive somewhere, where I might take a vacation. Um, And I believe that the only chance for us to sort of move past a reliance on these things, if it's possible, is going to take a big cultural change. That's what I find is often missing from the discussions around it. Earlier on, I made reference to the Frank Sinatra song, That's Life, where there's the lyric, I've been a puppet, a pauper, a pirate, a poet, a pawn, and a king. So I think it would be, if you'll indulge me, kind of interesting to find out when you have been perhaps each of these. When have you been a puppet, Michael Patrick F. Smith? Hmm. You may have been a puppet just for an afternoon. Right. (laughs) When I think of the general idea of complicity, I think that there's kind of that we're all kind of end up being puppets at certain elements in our lives. I don't know if that's a very good answer. No, it is. That's fine. When have you been a pauper? I've been a pauper a whole bunch. <laughs> As somebody who's uh, who's been uh, spent a, a good amount of time looking for and in between jobs, um, I know very well what it is like to live close to the bone. When have you been a pirate? I like to think that I've been a little bit of a pirate all the time. Definitely working on the rigs. It could feel like being a Mad Max style pirate. Um, and I also love sea shanties. Okay. This is going to this is going to be an easy one for you. When have you been a poet? Uh, <laughs> uh that is an easy one. I'd say I put every ounce of uh poetry I could into this book that I just wrote. When have you been a pawn? I've been a pawn just about any time I don't stop to consider for myself what I think is the best and most ethical thing to do. And finally, no matter how fleeting When have you been or at least felt like a king? I think that third cup of coffee I had this morning put me there for a few minutes. (laughs) (laughs) Michael Patrick F. Smith, I have to ask you, is there any question, sir, I've not asked you that you kind of wish I had? In other words, what do you want to say that you haven't had a chance to say? I feel like we we really covered covered a lot of stuff. It's been it was been nice to have a little bit of more of a personal conversation uh, and to be able to take our time. I have so enjoyed you spending this time, and I felt that we were were friends even as in this encapsulated time here. And uh, I can understand why so many people from all walks of life are so attracted to you. Be it the wildebeest, you know, friends like Huck or or many, many others that you've encountered. And I'm sure my audience feels like they've had a, a momentary friendship with you and in our minds it will live on. The book is entitled The Good Hand, a memoir of work, brotherhood and transformation in an American boomtown. And uh, it's a good read. And if you want to get in touch with a slice of life that perhaps is elusive to some of us, it's, it's a good book to pick up and uh, to enjoy thoroughly. So, Michael Patrick F. Smith, thank you so very much, sir, for uh, gracing our microphone on Watching America. Well, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure and uh, full of gratitude, so I appreciate it. You've been listening to Watching America. Our theme music is provided by Razorlight. That's life. Our recording engineer is Todd Washburn. Our assistant producer, 
Jordan Christie. Gina Gamboni is our senior producer. Chuck Dowd is our executive producer. And Heather Mazzoni is chief of content. Bert Schmidt is our CEO. I'm watching America's creator and host, Dr. Alan Campbell. I've been a puppet, a pauper, a pirate, a poet, a pawn and a king. I've been up and down and over and out, and I know one thing. Each time I find myself flat on my face, I pick myself up and get back in the race. That's life. Until next time, take care. And blessings. I can't deny it. Watching America is a production of WHRV Public Media in Norfolk, Virginia. My father laid down with his dog in the kitchen. My dad was seven and seven. His dog was one and one. My father was a boxer. His dog a Bernard, a saint. One thing my father ain't Pops would go bang When we was growing up He was a firecracker And our house was his cup One day his dog laid down Could not get back up My father laid down next to her did not even cuss He said I'm not strong enough to hold you here to keep you in this world I am weak so I will lay right down and offer of comfort Last week on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, Josh Gondelman told us his one wish now that people are finally being vaccinated. I don't have any living grandparents, so I feel like the CDC should assign me an old person to kiss. (laughs) I just want that excitement. (laughs) I'm Peter Sagal. If you're stuck with no one to talk to in your house, we are willing to be your friends. Just tune in to this week's News Quiz from NPR. Saturday at 11 on WHRV Public Media, serving Eastern Virginia.